Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCall with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we are joined by Nolan Gray, once and future urbanist and affiliated scholar with the Mercatus Center and, and possibly Star Wars apologist. Today's topic, really, is sort of a definitive statement and explanation of why Star Wars, the entire work of Star Wars, is vastly superior to Star Trek, uh, both from in terms of art and entertainment an understanding of humanity and maybe even the lessons that it can teach us from a policy perspective. So to get us started, Nolan, would you kind of give us at a high level, give us maybe a comparison or really a a contrast between Star Wars and Star Trek from your perspective? You know, to my mind, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, Doug and Josiah. It's a pleasure to be talking about these important issues. Um, You know, to my mind, I think there are a few important differences. I think for one, there's sort of a core canon with star wars right you have the now nine films uh these films are not all equally high quality but you have something like a core canon you can talk about star wars in a coherent way um with star trek it's a little bit more of a mess right uh we have uh, decades of tv shows uh handfuls of movies the big no-no in canons which uh we can talk about later which is time travel um which really messes everything up um, and then, of course, an entire reboot series that, uh, in, in theory, has nothing to do with the rest of the show. You know, Star Wars is a mythology, right? Uh, Star Wars is setting out a, a modern mythology, and um, Star Trek is just more of a serial. And it's it's interesting, but it's not of the profound cultural importance uh, of Star Wars. So it seems to me that there's sort of a also. A- I would I would think that it's almost a, a different understanding of humanity in the way the two the two works are presented. Do you think that I'm right about that? Do you think that there's you know because it seems to me that when I watch Star Trek, it, there's it's a very controlled environment and everyone is sort of working together and they're in this sort of flying shopping mall or something. Versus there's like this adventure to Star Wars, but it's also a rebellion against the forces of, I don't know, central planning and oppression. It just seems like there's a completely different worldview. Is, am, am I mistaken in that? No, I think you're totally right. I think Star Trek is much more technocratic, right? I mean, it, it really comes out of, you know, the, the 60s, right? Like the, 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 you know, the time of Camelot, right? Like we can go out and we can solve the world's problems and we just need to get a few... Uh, well-trained professionals and, um, you know, it's just a matter of procedurally dealing with everything. You know, Star Wars is much more mythological, right? Much more symbolic. There's even sort of some tension, right, between, I mean, the look at the, the sort of key concept in Star Wars is the force, right? This sort of abstract element that sort of moves through the universe that we can't really explain and you get some kind of you get a biological connection in episode one with midichlorians and that made fans just completely irate and i kind of understand why because it's this abstract thing it's not supposed to be sort of defined or tied down or biologically based um you know and this is kind of an enduring tension in the in the series right like this tension between technology and humanity uh whereas you get some of that in star trek with like the borg 
but that's really more of like, ah, people are losing their individual rationality. It's not an enduring theme as it is in Star Wars, this sort of question of what it means to be a human. Yeah, I would say, first off, that uh, I enjoy, you know, I, I like both Star Trek and Star Wars. They're both good series. But I do think uh, we have to recognize that most of the Star Wars movies were actually pretty bad. The prequels were pretty bad. The the new series, uh, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and whatever the whatever the third one was, those uh, those were not great. The solo movie was not great. Uh, so I, you know, you're talking about you talk about like a canon. There's definitely less material overall, and then of that material, a good portion of it. You know, even fans of this of even a lot of Star Wars fans would like to pretend that it doesn't exist. So, you know, I think that would be a, a knock against Star Wars. Also, you know, if you just talk about like cultural impact, you know, the we have the Space Force now. And when they came out with the Space Force logo, it was clearly inspired by Star Trek, right? By the, the Federation of Planets logo. And that's clearly been a big uh, inspiration for a lot of people in the space program in general, right? So I, w- I would say that, you know, perhaps uh, Star Trek has had a, a greater cultural impact just because it, it actually inspired people to do things other than like dress up in silly costumes, but to like, you know, go into engineering or other fields and, and uh, you know, would we have SpaceX, right? without Star Trek uh, inspiring people in that direction. I don't know. Let me interject here. And this is a question that I I really don't ask enough on this show. So Nolan, why is Josiah wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you know, to be diplomatic, Josiah's right. A lot of strange people have been inspired by Star Trek. I mean, the, the heaven's gate people watched it. (laughs) Apparently it was one of the few shows they were allowed to watch. Um, so I don't doubt that it's had an impact with some unusual sectors of society, the, the people who had the idea to come up with Space Wars. Um, you know, Star Wars has had similar effects, right? I mean, we the entire concept of a droid, right, comes out of Star Wars. Um, and as I understand, Samsung pays for, or Samsung or Google or whoever owns it pays royalties for it. You know, there was that whole thing with the, the Reagan uh, Star Wars program, right? I mean, I, I think that the depictions of sci-fi in general have been sort of inspiring. Um, I would say that Star Wars has, I mean, it's, it's reached more people, right? Like the average person on the street has like engaged with Star Wars on some level. And I don't know that that's true of Star Trek. Like they might have like a vague notion of Star Trek as like this kind of geeky sci-fi show, but like the average person can't be like, you know, couldn't name like five people in, in Star Trek, but they could name like five people in Star Wars. And maybe not all those people are going to go start like, um, the space force (laughs) or they're not going to get physics PhDs. Uh, but they are like engaging in the material. So if we're talking about like cultural importance, I mean, also too, like there are like 50 different lines, right. That, you, that the average person could just throw out about star Wars, right. Like may the force be with you. Um, I have a bad feeling about this, right. Like these are little things that have like worked, you know, they're, they're, they're quotes that are like so ubiquitous that we don't even really fully remember that they sort of emerged from star Wars. Um, so, the, I mean, the cultural importance question is interesting. I, I think you're probably right that a lot of consequential people who watched the original series in, like, the 60s did go on to do really interesting and important things. But in terms of making people think about space, 
I, I can't see how it couldn't be Star Wars as the more dominant cultural force. So I want to kind of bring this back into sort of a, a policy discussion. Your, you know, your area is urban policy. What what lessons do you think that that we can draw from Star Wars and Star Trek? Because it seems to me that that if you look to say homeowners associations and so forth, it, they're kind of like the empire. They're just trying to bring this oppression on people, you know, that are trying to just live their lives, have freedom. Is that a fair a fair description? And and if this is the case, wouldn't you say that that really in this scenario, the real Jedi are probably think tankers? <laughs> Yeah, of course. I'm, uh, we, the, the gentlemen on this podcast are the true Jedi. You know, I do think one parallel that I've drawn recently is I think, and, and I'm sorry, Josiah, but I'm going to talk about the prequels. I do think they're good. Uh, <laughs> we can, that can be our next line of argument, but okay, good, good. You know, I, there's an interesting sort of thread there, right. Of an institution in decline. Um, you know, that's kind of the story that Lucas is trying to tell, in the prequel films, the, the Republic is, you know, has these sort of unresolvable conflicts and things are getting worse. And, you know, the society's careening toward war and there's really not anything that can be done about it. Um, and something, an element that I think is just actually very, very clever about the prequel films, um, other than Jar Jar Binks, uh, is this sort of the fact that Palpatine is like the hero, right? Until he's not, right? Like he is sort of trying to save the system. He's trying to turn everything around. People love him. They give him unlimited powers. You know, I think that Lucas could have told a simple story about like, you know, Palpatine engaged in a military coup and took power sort of, you know, uh, illegally, or, you know, he was an invader. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't. It was a system that just sort of gradually went off the rails and, put too much power in the hands of the wrong people slash persons. And frankly, that's probably a pretty good analog for contemporary land use politics. You know, we have all these rules that were set up um, decades ago, in some cases with good intentions, in some cases with, with bad intentions, you know, in some cases to prevent incompatible uses from being next to each other, but more often than not to you know, keep certain groups of people separated on the basis of uh, race or, or economic means. And these systems have just sort of, you know, declined over time and been captured by special interests, people who want to uh, preserve the value of their asset or exclude certain people. And it's hard to look at any one person in a public planning hearing and, and sort of, you know, who's advocating against uh, needed new jobs or housing and say, ah, that person is evil. That person is a bad guy. Um, you know, in many cases, the, the system is sort of eliciting that kind of behavior. So I would agree uh, that the prequels have a lot of great material and themes to deal with, you know, about like civilizational decline, these other things. I, I think it's kind of part of the problem is that they don't execute on that, uh, you know, and instead you have uh, kind of strained like... Uh, badly acted romantic drama and, and other things like that. I would also say, you know, the, the Jedi are kind of um, responsible for the destruction of the Republic uh, through their oh, yeah, own totally. incompetence. Yeah. So I hope, you know, I don't know if I hope, I hope that think tankers are not the equivalent uh, of the Jedi in that respect. <laughs> if so, we, we have a lot to answer for. Uh, I, I think I actually think that probably Orrin Cass would make the case that we, we that we are responsible for the destruction. 
<laughs> well, yeah, perhaps, perhaps, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what Cass's thoughts on, on Star Wars, uh, versus Star Trek, but you know, I, I, I will say, you know, just in defense of Star Trek is that like, if you're, if you're talking about political implications, I mean, Star Trek was all about politics, right? Uh, sometimes in like a heavy handed way, but I mean, you know, half the episodes are, are some sort of political dynamic about war or privacy or race relations, you know, all sorts of stuff, uh, the nature of government and leadership. Um, and, you know, even not just the original series next generation, but, you know, if you talk about like deep space nine, uh, you don't even have, it's not all uh, the, the different series, I think come at these issues from like, different uh, levels so it's not all you know swashbuckling uh you know kennedy-esque liberalism either right uh, some of it some of it has kind of maybe, maybe a darker view of uh of humanity than than other stuff so uh, i don't i i was trying to think like uh what are the star trek episodes about land use policy uh and i don't i don't know um you know if i were if I were uh, a smarter, maybe I could make some sort of uh, analogy to with uh, the trouble with the tribbles, but I don't know. But that's a good question. I don't know, actually. I couldn't name a Star Trek episode with, that touches on Lenny's. I mean, I, uh, the catalog is so vast, I don't doubt it, it's out there. Yeah. I mean, I, there I is, I, I guess maybe, you know, there, there was an episode, uh, an early episode of um, Star Trek The Next Generation, where they went to this planet and there was like this little glassed in garden thing that you weren't allowed to touch. And then Wesley, uh, who's a little annoying, like was running and fell and broke it. And so then they were going to have to kill him because of that. Maybe that, maybe that's, uh, you know, is, is similar to some of these, uh, extravagant HOA rules. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. You all are in Texas and the, the HOA is kind of the big villain. Um, which is I mean, partly a function of, of, of how we sort of allocate land use rules, right? You know, in places with much more extreme government zoning, uh, HOAs aren't often doing nearly as much. Uh, but, you know, it's a sort of a pick your poison situation in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I, I've definitely seen developers touch the wrong thing at a public hearing and nearly get uh, executed. Um, <laughs> I mean, in Star Wars, I think that, of course, it doesn't directly touch on, on land use. You know, uh, people complain about the prequels being too wonky, but they don't go that far. Um, just just international trade relations, which, frankly, I enjoy, um, which is also partly why I'm a prequel defender. <laughs> but, um, you know, there is this sort of there is this symbolic element to, you know, the the sort of urbanism of star wars right you know one critique of star wars is that oh all, all these planets are like one like one thing right like you know uh hoth is like a giant winter planet uh tatooine is a giant desert planet and that's a fair critique and you know we we see a small little window of the planet but you know there is there's symbolic um meaning in it right like moss Eisley and um Tatooine is meant to be sort of a frontier town, right? It's sort of some, it's sort of meant to symbolize that in its urban form. Um, you know, Naboo is meant to be sort of this protected, uh, you know, uh, pre-modern kind of, you know, Italian at, uh, or sorry, Thebes specifically on Naboo, uh, just to flex for all the Star Wars fans listening. Um, the city is Thede. Uh, 
you know, it has this, you know, clearly some sort of design regulation is at play uh, in Theed, for better or worse. You know, it's this classical kind of masterpiece meant to sort of symbolize this this old surviving society that's butting up against the sort of modern uh, interventionist forces of, of the Trade Federation. You know, and then, of course, you have Coruscant, one of the most famous depictions of a city probably in all of sci-fi. Um, can't remember. There's some kind of clever, weird word that was come up with in the 1970s. But, you know, it's an entire world that's one city um you know and it's uh there are certain design elements there too that i think are meant to sort of um reinforce the sort of decadence and like power of this right like you see especially in episode one all the background images the the architecture is all art deco you know like this is supposed to be like new york city in the 1920s in a lot of respects right like this fabulously wealthy sort of self-assured place that's just sort of on the precipice of like something terrible happening um, you know, we get to see some of the more monumental architecture, uh, in the next, you know, two films, Attack of the Clones and, and Revenge of the Sith. But, um, you know, it's, it's all sort of like the Galactic Senate and the Jedi, uh, temple with the exception of the, the opera house, which I think is trying to communicate something similar, you know, this sort of like this urban opulence, right? Palpatine is, is talking Anakin sort of mentally through, uh, the process of becoming a Sith and they're in this like beautiful, lavish, wealthy um, space. And then of course our, all of our heroes come from the boondocks, come from the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, which I think is, is reinforcing to a certain extent, American kind of anti-urbanism, but you know, to the extent that there's a lane single on Star Wars, that's sort of where my head's at. <laughs> so if we're talking about sort of two different universes, Star Wars, Star Trek, it seems to me that there's two other places strike me as practically being two different universes or California and Texas. Um, talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about what the what you've seen sort of from the past year in the way we've dealt, each state has dealt with the COVID uh, response, particularly in light of the fact that um, our governor in Texas has just declared that Texas is 100% open. What's what's sort of the different? I mean, obviously, don't get too much in the details about all the details of the COVID response, but just what makes these states so different? The way they perceive humanity, the way they approach policy. Why are things so different between these states? It's a really interesting question. I mean, just to kind of return to a point I was making earlier, you know, about these institutions that get set up uh, and sort of you know gradually decline over time, right? I think California is in an advanced state of that in many respects. You know, there are a lot of rules on the books, you know, things like zoning have become much, much, much more strict here. It's virtually impossible to build. You know, one of the reasons why Los Angeles was ground zero for the COVID outbreak at the beginning of the year, you know, it was kind of funny because a year ago you had folks saying, hey, you know, New York's getting slammed and L.A. is doing just fine. And it's because L.A. doesn't have a lot of density. Um, well, so th- that story became very complicated in, in, in January when we had our own outbreak here. Um, the reality was, of course, L.A. is not, you know, low density. L.A. is actually one of the densest metro areas in the country. Um, and what that sort of narrative missed was overcrowding. There's extreme overcrowding in L.A. And why is there overcrowding? Because, you know, in many cases, families have to double or triple up in the same unit. Um, and if these are essential workers all going out to different workspaces to, to, you know, to keep the economy running, they're all going to come back potentially with, uh, with the disease. And that's a huge problem. And the overcrowding is a function of housing scarcity and the housing scarcity is a function of overly strict rules or, you know, another institution here in California, which is the, uh, 
uh, Environmental Quality Act, the Environmental Review. So if you want to build, um, you know, if you want to build uh, some single-family homes way far out in the middle of nowhere in the desert uh, in Lancaster and Palmdale, you're not actually going to have a lot of problems with an environmental review because there's not going to be anyone around to complain or to critique it. But if you try to actually build an apartment building uh, in L.A. right next to a, a bus line, uh, you're going to have major environmental reviews. So you have all these systems that over time have just sort of, you know, declined in functionality or become co-opted by uh, bad faith special interests. And it's it's made the state, you know, very expensive and very hard to sort of uh, start a business in many respects. I look to Texas and I say, you know, how do you prevent this from happening in Texas? And that's really what I would say the conversation needs to be there. You know, not only because a lot of Californians are moving to Texas, in general, those Californians are are, are, are more um, uh, averse to a lot of the policies that have, have uh, sort of disfigured California. Uh, but because the, there are institutions there that could, you know, decline and make it, uh, put it in a similar situation. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to go rogue here a little bit and, and not talk about uh, Star Wars or Star Trek at all, because it doesn't seem like they map terribly well on the Texas and California. When I, you know, uh, California, especially Northern California, reminds me more of like, uh, and I guess maybe even Southern California, it reminds me more of Blade Runner. Uh, in fact, there were last year when they had the fires in California, there were all, there were all these uh, pictures of like the sky was orange and you had all these like skyscrapers, which people pointed out was very similar to the imagery from, uh, from Blade Runner. Uh, and there's also, you know, like particularly in San Francisco, if you go there, you know, the, the darkness between, you know, say like buildings, you know, housing, billion dollar companies, you know, surrounded by, uh, groups of homeless people or whatever, you know, it's just very stark. Um, and you haven't seen, I don't think you could, you know, there's nothing on the quite the same level in Texas. Maybe Texas is more like, uh, the, oh, you know, uh, canceled, Distressingly canceled show Firefly or something like that. Uh, <laughs> you can build out that wow. if you want to do. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I think it's fantastically underrated, uh, and to the extent that we can keep the conversation alive and get that show to come back. Yes. Well, the, the one thing I will say is, you know, bitter experience has taught me that um, when shows come back from the dead, uh, it's, it, it never works out well. You know, uh, even like, you know, whether it's, uh, every, anything from like Arrested Development to the X-Files to, um, I guess the twin, the new Twin Peaks was okay. Um, it it was, yeah, it was very, uh, David Lynch being self-indulgent. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As he is wont to do. But yeah, most of the time, you know, I, we've seen this like kind of over and over again because uh, Hollywood's kind of out of ideas. They just bring things back. So, you know, they brought back a, a huge number of like nineties and early two thousands era stuff uh, with the same casts and other things. And you would think that that's like, that's great, but it's almost always been a big bitter disappointment for the fans because whatever the original magic was there is gone now. Uh, and so, 
I would worry with Firefly, although, you know, I would have liked to see the show continue on. Um, you know, I worry that you would have the same thing there. Yeah, you're, you're giving voice to uh, my, my terror at the idea of bringing back The Office. Uh, right. I think it gets yeah. floated regularly, and I'm like, no, 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 this, this would be a huge disaster. Yeah, Please and, don't do this. <laughs> yeah, and to, and to bring it back to Star Wars, I think that Star Wars is kind of the original example of this, where you had the, you know, the original movies, and then finally they're they were going to do the prequels, and everyone ex- was excited, and then you know we know how that how that turned out, uh, and then of course we've seen that repeat again with the with the sequel movies, uh, which I guess not everyone is as negative on as I am, but I people will at least privately tell me that, you know, yeah, those were, those were not very good either. Can I I make an argument about that here? I actually think that I do think the sequels are meaningfully worse than the prequels. Um, So I, I, the, the argument that I've made to my friends who are um, um, insistent in being wrong about the prequels is at least there's like a a coherent vision, right? Like the, the prequels and the original films were trying to have a conversation and there's like clear character development and it's kind of clear where things are going, you know? Like I, that, I find that many people who don't like the prequels really enjoyed actually uh, Revenge of the Sith, you know, because it's like pretty good, like, you know, very like emotionally intense movie that's like setting you up pretty well for, you know, the decline of the empire. Um, my beef with the sequels, the sequel trilogy is that there's really no vision, right? It's very much like uh, Star Wars by committee. Um, and like, I don't think, you know, mm-hmm. like you need all these sort of weird quirks that Lucas brought to um the films for better or worse, right? Like it, it fundamentally is his project. Um, and this sort of like having JJ Abrams and, 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 and Ryan Johnson and like, you know, four or five other people. And then like a whole cadre of Disney executives, like coming up with what's going to be the story. I think it's just been a total disaster. Um, you know, I was, I think the, the conversation that, that, that Doug was tapping into that started this whole conversation was uh, rogue one. Uh, I thought Rogue One was incredible. Um, ironically enough, that was a Rogue movie One, where there, yes. was like, there was an intervention, um, you know, like 75% of the way through production. Uh, and that scared me because, I, you know, I remember when the trailer came out and I thought the trailer looked incredible. Um, and then they were like, ah, oh, it's too dark. We're going to recut it. And then the movie comes out and it's still pretty, like, dark and heavy and <laughs> everybody dies at the end. And, you know, it's a very, like, bleak vision of, like, the, the Empire at, like, peak power uh right you know right before a new hope um you know or or i think you've had really amazing things come out of like feloni's work with star wars rebels and star wars clone wars uh and then uh favreau's work with with mandalorian you know i think that i think that hopefully they will sort of appreciate like all right this is kind of what went wrong with with the sequels we didn't have there was no vision i I can't even imagine them doing another trilogy and not saying like one person is going to be at the helm for the next three movies even if the first one you know the fans uh throw a temper tantrum like they do with every movie uh and it doesn't make that much money we we have to see it through because otherwise it'll be such a disaster and because when they give these you know visionaries like favreau or filoni when they say hey all right you can do your thing with this product and we're not going to like mess with you too much we get these incredible uh, TV shows and movies, and I think they need to kind of learn the lesson from that. Uh, yeah, so I, I definitely would agree about Rogue One. Uh, that, that you know that was a great film. I really enjoyed that. Um, and I haven't seen The Mandalorian because uh, I don't have uh, Disney Plus or whatever it is, but I've heard good things about that. I think you know to the extent like 
I think that it helps that those were limited, narrow stories, kind of like off the off the path of the of the main story almost. Uh, whereas with the like prequels and sequels, there was kind of an expectation that it was going to be grander, and they really, particularly with the sequels, uh, they really just didn't have anything to fill it with. Uh, they used the same plots from the original trilogy, basically, uh, with some new characters that, uh, you know, uh, Poe uh, was a little interesting, but the other characters did not really seem interesting at all, and they didn't really know what to do with them. And, yeah, obviously, uh, having it having everything written by, done by committee is generally not a good uh, recipe for, uh, you know, for a work like that as well. So I guess, I guess what that does indicate is that, you know, maybe there are still some good things you could do with it in the future. Um, if they, if they decided to, but, um, like if they, if they make another series of tr- trilogies, are they going to have, like, are they going to bring back Ray and I guess did Kylo Ren die? I forget. No, he did not die. Yeah. But like they had a they, they had a platonic kiss at the end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah. So I mean, like you know, would would they like do another trilogy with those characters? It doesn't really seem to me that anyone cares about them. Um, and you know, like one thing I would say, you know, the good thing, you know, about like you really you really were kind of emotionally invested in the in the original trilogy in what happened with some of these characters good and bad and at least for me there was really not much of that i know and the movies didn't really seem to be all that invested in them either so you would do things like you have you know snoke whoever he is uh shows up and he's evil for a while and then he's just dead and you never really even find out who he is i don't think um so yeah uh kind of kind of lazy storytelling in my opinion yeah i mean you, even worse you find out who he is and he's just like a clone uh of like you know palpatine was still around that he was making snokes for you know question mark reasons right yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry doug we're, we're flying off the rails here we could probably complain about the sequels we could complain about the sequels all day um, mm-hmm. so save yeah. us from ourselves it's good to get convergence, you know. <laughs> so, so back to sort of our prior conversation about maybe the differences between California and Texas. I, I see on a regular basis both companies moving to Texas, but also families moving to Texas. And there's often a conversation, sort of the knee-jerk reaction of, well, obviously people and companies are moving here because the taxes are lower. But – do you think that maybe part of the reason, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think the business regulations is a part of it, but I think the part, one of the things that I don't think gets enough talk about is, is the difference in affordable housing. How much of a factor do you think that is in families coming to Texas? I think it's huge. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the average family's budget, right? Like maybe I'm sure there are some oligarchs out there for whom their, their tax obligation is, you know, a big line item on their budget, but for most working families, working you know working class, middle class families, housing is the number one item. Um, you know, closely followed by transportation. Um, and 
if you are a family in a place like California, you know, in Metro Bay Area, Metro Los Angeles, uh, it's harder than ever to just afford a decent home. Um, you know, what you hear more and more about here in California are these people who are forced to undertake super commutes, commuting more than two hours. Um, you know, so you're in this impossible situation in, in a California city where you either have to sort of compromise and pay a lot for, for poor housing and live maybe reasonably close to where you work or have one of these two hour super commutes. Um, and I think the, the taxes do matter, right, on the margins, of course. Uh, but when you can move, you know, from a place like LA to a place like Houston and literally chop your housing costs, you know, by 25 to 50% and, you know, actually become a homeowner or, or, or buy a condo or a townhouse or a small home, um, people respond to, people respond to that, right? Like, you know, whenever I visit Texas, um, you know, and I've, I've had the opportunity to visit friends recently in Dallas. Um, the first, in a, if they've moved from somewhere else, so in this case, I, it was some friends from New York who had moved to Dallas. What's the first thing they're going to tell you about? Look at all this housing that I could buy. Like, look at this huge house that I could buy for the equivalent of like a very small hundred year old condo in New York. Um, I think this is a huge factor. And part of that, you know, there's a policy implication, right? Because like, we can't just rest on our laurels. Like more, as more people move to Texas, there's going to be need for more housing. If you want to keep that standard of living and that cost of living, uh, if you want to keep the standard of living high and the cost of living low. Uh, and it's going to take serious conversations about some of the rules that are going to make that harder going forward. You know, part of the reason why Texas is, is, is so uh, affordable, you know, is of course it's, it's a more accommodating regulatory environment, um, uh, a whole bunch of other things, cultural factors. Uh, but a big reason is that there's still just a lot of cheap developable land. Um, so, you know, a place like Austin can still continue to spread out. Uh, you know, of course, Houston and Dallas are famous for this, San Antonio. There's still a lot of cheap land to build out low density, uh, zoning approved single family homes. But what's going to happen when these cities sort of hit these sort of outer limits of that, when the outer limit, you know, from downtown Dallas to the furthest suburb is two, three hours, right? Like we're, we're pretty much approaching that now. And what the housing development is going to have to start looking like is, you know, lot splits, right? You take a 5,000 square foot home in the city and you divide it into two smaller homes and two families can now live on that lot and afford the homes in light of the higher land costs. Um, more apartments or condos or townhouses. This is sort of a natural process that cities go through as, as more people move there and demand rises, uh, you, you increase the amount of supply on the same amount of land. And in many cases in Texas cities, um, you know, it's very hard to do that. Of course, Austin is somewhat infamous for being the most California-like city in Texas. Um, not incidentally, they have very, very strict land use rules. They've been struggling to pass uh, a zoning reform that would uh, very slightly liberalize these for the past decade, as I understand. Um, you know, other cities are having these conversations. Houston is, is well positioned in the sense that they just never adopted zoning, uh, but they have many zoning like rules on the books, you know, requiring off street parking or, 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 or requiring things like setbacks. Uh, but you know, in many cases, these, these rules are on the books, right? You have things like single family zoning, which don't allow a developer to build an apartment building or a duplex uh, or minimum parking requirements would say, if you want to build, let's say you want to build an apartment building in, in downtown Dallas, most of the people who live in it are going to walk or ride a bicycle or, or take transit to where they work. 
Uh, we're still going to require you to build a massive parking garage. That's how you get the a typology called the Dallas Donut. The Dallas Donut is a uh, the the outer portion of the parcel is developed with multifamily, and then rather than a courtyard as you might traditionally have in the middle, you have a giant parking garage. Um, somewhat infamous within planning circles, but um, and you know if 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 you have a circumstance where everyone who's going to live in that building is going to drive, right? You know, you have a lot of multifamily development happening kind of far out in the suburbs. That's fine. You know, if, if that's what the if that's what it takes to sell or lease out those units, right? Let the developers and the consumers decide how much parking to build. Uh, but in many cases, in many cities, the, the, you know, the government is actually telling you you have to build so much. Uh, if you want to if you want to build a small apartment building, hey, you have to build a giant parking garage. Uh, and these can add costs. Uh, and these are exactly the types of rules that made California unaffordable over the course of decades as demand to live in the city increased and they had this hard limit on the supply. And I always say the best time to quit smoking is to not start. Um, Texas is affordable now. Um, this is fantastic. A lot of people are responding and moving there. But if, if there aren't these sorts of land use reforms and land use conversations happening today, it's really probably just a matter of time before Texas has California-like housing problems. And uh, I'm constantly imploring folks I know in Texas to start taking this issue seriously. Living in California, I see it firsthand. You have a lot of people living in the streets out of desperation, folks living in their cars, folks living in RVs. Never saw that until I moved out here. Um, you know, people with these two-hour super commutes. It really is a humanitarian crisis. And uh, it's, it's mainly, it's overwhelmingly a function of excessive government regulation in this space. So in that sense, it's a narrative that should stick with Texans. You know, carry this Texas ethos to land use. Let people do what they want with their property. Let cities grow. Um, you don't need to have the government micromanage every element of new development. And as a side benefit, you get to keep the affordability that made Texas such a great place to live. I agree with all of that. I, uh, I unfortunately, I think Austin is kind of headed in the wrong direction. You know, the the mayor has this distressing habit of going to San Francisco to like learn from them, you know, what should oh, be done with a lot of these policies, which, uh, and not in like, uh, a, you know, cautionary tale type of way. Um, right. so, so yeah, but, uh, it is, it is the case that even, even in Austin, which is probably among the worst in Texas, you know, I, I have some friends who recently moved to Austin from, uh, New York city for reasons that should be obvious. And they were saying the other day that, you know, just on their block, uh, there's several, there's several houses being built and they don't live like, you know, they, they, they don't live like out in the boonies either. So building is still possible here, uh, although it's, you know, more difficult uh, and it probably will continue to get more difficult, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a totally fair point. I mean, I, I don't want to overplay my hand here. Right. Like the Texas cities do build a lot and even Austin builds a lot. And this is a positive thing. And I think that, you know, I'm sort of more pointing out what do we what do, what do these cities look like in 10, 20 years? You know, when all the when a lot of the cheap land is developed, uh, then we have to have start having uh, uncomfortable conversations about redeveloping properties or, you know, taking existing properties and, and adding more density. And, and, you know, I think on one level, people sort of get the vacant lot being developed or they get the house that's been distressed being demolished and, and, and rebuilt as an apartment building or something like that. Uh, 
But, you know, as as cities become denser and, and, and more popular and more people want to live there, these conversations get tougher. And, you know, one way that, that Texas can head off this problem is to change some of the regulatory systems uh, that, you know, these hard conversations kind of hijacked and ended up destroying cities in California. All right. Well, uh, Nolan, thank you so much for being on the show. Next week, we're going to have back uh, Michael Hendricks, who's going to explain to us why James Bond is a great American hero. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me.